Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now, here's your host. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of All Autism Talk, the podcast brought to you by Learn Behavioral, a leading provider in ABA services across the country. I'm your host this week, Richie Plush. One thing that I've been noticing and I've been having a lot of conversations about lately is that there really isn't one set career path for behavior analysts to follow. It's not like you necessarily go to school and then become a behavior analyst and then work your way up into a director role and then stay there for 30 years and then retire. That's not necessarily the the case for everybody and that doesn't have to be your path. Really, there are so many paths and so many opportunities that you can have in your career that I've had in my career, um, from being in a school district to teaching new BCBAs to working internationally to supporting certainly young learners, which we spend a lot of time doing, but also adults in a variety of different ways. I'm really excited about this conversation with Dr. Paula Donqua Brovi because our conversation kind of follows that same path. And we sort of go from topic to topic and we bounce around a little bit. And one of the things that's really interesting for me is the parallels between her career and some of the things that she's done and some of the things that I've had an opportunity to do, working internationally, working, um, supporting young and up and coming behavior analysts, teaching graduate schools. So it's really just exciting for me to be able to uh, have this conversation and share this insight with you a little bit so that you can see if you're a young and if you're a new BCBA or a new behavior analyst, there are so many opportunities for you to really diversify your experience and diversify your influence in the field not just by doing what you're doing in your home community. So I'm really excited about this conversation. It was really a natural one for me. And we uh, we talked for a while about a variety of different topics, but it was just an opportunity for us to share um, share similar experiences and why I really think clinicians enjoy connecting to each other. Because what I'm doing in my hometown can be different from what you're doing in your hometown. Our clientele can be different. Our supports can be different. Our strategies can be the same. But there's so many different things that go on in our given communities. I hope you pull that from this conversation. Dr. Paula Donqua Broby is an international psychologist, board certified behavior analyst, and is currently serving as the ABA chair for the Chicago School of Professional Psychology's DC campus. She has over 20 years of experience working with young children diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, developmental delays, and other learning disabilities, both nationally and internationally. She's provided ABA treatment, training, and consultation services to families, professionals, and organizations throughout the US, the Middle East, North Africa, and West Africa. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Paula Dunkwabrobi. Paula, thanks so much for joining us this week. It's so great to have you on our show. Thanks for inviting me to be here. We've had a a ton of conversations. I'm excited to have a different conversation where we get to know more about you and our audience hasn't heard any from you before. So I'm just excited that you're here. I'm excited to be here. So uh, tell us a little bit, how did you get into the field of ABA, into the field of applied behavior analysis? Sure. So I used to work at a company that was a reading remediation company. So we worked with children who were dyslexic, hyperlexic, um, many different learning disabilities, ADHD. And so um, a lot of the children that would come in who were hyperlexic were also on the spectrum. And I don't, I'm not sure if you know what hyperlexia is, but it's essentially that you can decode 
the words in front of you, but you cannot comprehend or hold on to that information. So we had children on the spectrum that could decode beautifully, but there would be a, you could um, have them read or read to them a very simple sentence, like the red bird flew into the yellow house and then ask what color was the bird and there would be no response or the wrong response or what have you. So, but wow. can decode medical, medical journals beautifully. <laughs> Just so, that comprehension piece. Yeah, exactly. And so as I moved up in the company, I um, started taking on more of the hyperlexic cases. Um, and I fell in love with children on the spectrum. And through my love for children on the spectrum, I discovered ABA. Um, I didn't realize at the time that what we were doing was essentially ABA um, because outside of those sessions, well, we, we got a lot of training on how to um, have instructional control and how to maintain instructional control and how to um, uh, manage behaviors in the session and what have you. And so that kind of kicked things off for me that but mostly just falling in love with the children on the spectrum and then talking to their parents and hearing more about what other therapies they were involved in outside of what they were doing with us. And then um, I ended up moving from DC to California and I um, started working for an ABA company and it just took off from there, my love for ABA and deepened my love for children on the spectrum and their families. It's so amazing. Like, I love hearing that response because it, so many people, and myself included, mm -hmm. you know, started off in a related field and we didn't realize that what we were doing was applied yeah. behavior analysis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was like, oh, we were, I was doing, you know, I was using token systems and I had a visual schedules in place. And, and you know, mm -hmm. for me, I was running a, a classroom. I was a special day class teacher and I had implement, I had implemented pieces of applied behavior analysis throughout my classroom and didn't realize it until I started my master's program. Mm -hmm. I was like, mm -hmm. man, there's a science to what I'm doing. And there's a whole, <laughs> there's a whole body of research supporting what it exactly. is. And it just was almost like a relief you know, to mm -hmm. know that there's more than what I was doing. Yeah. Um, sounds like yeah. you had kind of a similar experience. I did. I did. And it just took me in a completely different direction because I thought I was going to get into um, doing more reading remediation work. And I thought that my professional career was going to uh, focus more on uh, children who are hyperlexic and reading comprehension and executive functioning and what have you but it went in a very different direction <laughs> and yeah. I'm happy for it. Right. So then, so you moved to California, you were working with a, a company that was providing ABA services yes. in home and clinic. In home, in home, okay. in home. And so the reading company um, honestly was quite expensive for the consumers. Um, uh, so we saw a lot of affluent families come in. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I moved to California and started working for the ABA company, I was working with um, um, very poor families in very poor neighborhoods, um, mostly uh, Latino families mm -hmm. um, and uh uh, California, I don't know if it's California, but LA has this really beautiful um, system out there where, you know, 
families who don't have a lot of money can um, get resources. Yeah, the regional center. Yeah, families can go and get services. And this was about 18 years ago. And so, um, so I, I was traveling to all of these families' homes and, and working with these families who normally wouldn't have been able to afford services. And I just, um, I fell in love with them, but I also, um, it became clearer to me how the disenfranchised were impacted by, um, by being disenfranchised, but how, uh, how their access to services was greatly limited um, in comparison to those affluent families that I used to work with. Um, and so there started uh, another social justice <laughs> piece yeah. of my work. Yeah. And that that sort of spiraled into a whole different body of work for you, right? I mean, it that did. It did. Um, before I get into the international work, I just want to tell you, Richie, about this one story. Um, my first ABA client um, in California, and this was what made me fall in love with ABA because the reading company um, uh, helped me discover my love for children on the spectrum and their families. But this first ABA company made me fall in love with ABA. And so I had this client, um, the first time I ever worked with him, he cried for the entire session. It was, uh, uh, I think we started with a 50 minute session and he cried the whole time. Um, it was the first time he had had any ABA services, had any real demands placed on him. He was a preschooler. He was about, about four years old. Um, his presentation was pretty severe. He was nonverbal, um, perseverated on any long item that would wiggle. So belts, mm. um, water hoses, belts were his favorite though. Um, and he would kind of wiggle it side to side, like how you would do a snake, like to yep. see it just move. And so, um, and so very withdrawn, that was his thing. Um, no joint attention, not a lot of shared engagement. Um, and so he was a tough case to me. <laughs> that was my first case. And so, um, we worked and worked and worked. And one day, um, you know, we, he had a little, he had a huge backyard. He had like a play set in the backyard that had a slide and everything. And I would take him out and do some net with him outside. And every day I would leave his home, I would close the gate and he would be in the front yard and he would find a hose or a belt and he would be wiggling it. And I would just look at him and wave my hand and say bye in his name and he wouldn't respond. And then, um, so one day I did that for the probably 50th time and he looked up and he waved and said, bye. And I stood there and cried. Yeah. <laughs> and Richie, not the, not the, oh my goodness, the ugly cry. <laughs> <laughs> I probably scared him and his mother because I just stood there crying. Yeah. Um, because I knew how significant that was. And I knew that was a turning point for that child and for that family. And that I saw the beauty of the science of ABA and that it worked, you know. Right. Um, and at first I was not necessarily too sure about it because I had several sessions of a child crying, but you know, that I had just started and I realized now that um, I, I probably should have been trained a bit differently. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a 
beautiful experience that's really started my journey to ABA. And that's when I really wanted to go to graduate school and learn about this thing um, called more about autism, about ABA and all of that. story. I mean, I'm shaking my head along with you as you're describing it because we can all think of, you know, so many of us can think of a a client that we've worked with or a family member or, you know, a neighbor or a friend or somebody in our social group that has gone through a similar experience. Um, I, you know, I'm, as you're describing, I was thinking of my first client and and experience. (laughs) And um, so I had, so this, this little guy I was working with, he was the same age. He, you know, didn't have access, you know, similar, not necessarily in a, in a very affluent area and was really struggling to get access to services. They lived in a remote part of, of San Diego where I live and um, Mm -hmm. didn't have a lot of preschool services and things like that. I remember for so long, we were just, I was just trying to get him to like, hang out and be comfortable playing, you know, like we would play, what's the game you want to play? You want to play Candyland? Great. We'll play it for an hour. Fine. Well, I'll figure out ways to build in, you know, language opportunities and requests. And I remember remember his first word and I remember hearing his first word and like the same thing. Like I, I reserved myself, but I started crying and I called his mom and his mom and I called his, you know, he lived with his mom and his grandparents and like, I called the whole family and then he was quiet. And I was like, no, you got to do it again. You got to do it one more time. And then, and then he did. And, um, Oh gosh, I, I forget if he was saying more or chips. I forget which one of the words that he, mm-hmm. you know, that's, mm-hmm. this was just the word he came up with. And and like then the whole family is we're all st- sitting in the living room and I'm on the floor with him and they're all standing kind of <laughs> behind me and it's like and like now they're all crying and I was like it's right. such, those it's- those breakthroughs are really what. Um, like I think like those breakthroughs can define moments you know yes mm-hmm. that was a changing moment for your client and for mine but also for each of us in terms of exactly. our careers to me that was like all right I'm committed I'm going to be in this field mm-hmm. some way for the rest mm-hmm. of my life yeah hopefully if you're listening and you have that same uh have had that same experience it can you know it's doing the same for you and if you haven't yet keep pushing and keep going because yeah, a lot of times it's, it's coming right it's, it's coming. coming yes so then you went back to so so that kind of sparked this career for you of going back and getting yes. your master's and your PhD and yeah. now you're involved in a, a multitude of different things <laughs> in a multitude um, of things yeah yeah it's been a journey I've 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 done ever I've done a lot um, when I got back um, so after California I actually moved back to DC to go to graduate school and they at the time. Um, there were no behavior analytic um, graduate programs around Mm me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I went into a clinical psych master's program and um, earned my master's in clinical psychology and was a psych associate for a while and uh, for a little bit and went into um, neuropsychological assessment. And I worked under, um, I worked for the head of the neuropsychology department at that time at a very prestigious organization here in the um, 
Washington, D.C. area, in the Maryland area. And so I did neuropsychological assessment for a little bit. And I used to be a part of um, the team that would diagnose children um, and individuals with ADHD, autism, depression. I tested for research. Um, so all of the IQ tests, all of the achievement tests, the war shock, I can implement all of those <laughs> assessments, um, score them, write reports for them, analyze them, all of that. Was that a challenging experience for you working in that, in that, in that lab? Being in, in um, no, at first, no, it wasn't challenging. I actually enjoyed it a lot. And, and I see now um, when, not now, because I'm, I'm working with students, but when I was working um, and I had clients, a lot of the parents didn't understand the assessments that they had been given, even though they may have been um, given a summary by the person that, um, that implemented the assessment. Um, they didn't really understand it, couldn't connect the dots and how that factored into treatment. And because of that neuropsych work, when I would always request, you know, give me everything and parents would have folders or they would have, um, as nowadays it's electronic, but they'd have like folders of papers on, on their kiddo, on their child. And I would read through all of the assessments that they had um, been given and look at the scaled scores, look at the T scores, look at, you know, all the scores and, um, and, and, you know, all of the recommendations. And I found that I had to then re-summarize everything for the parent and connect it back to um, the treatment plan or the treatment that they, um, that I'm, I was implementing with the, with the kiddo. Um, but I, I found it challenging going back to your question because I started feeling like there was like a com conveyor belt of here's someone they're presenting or, or I need to assess them. Um, I give them these, these assessments. I, you know, uh, score them, analyze them, write a report, make recommendations, the end, you know? And yeah. so that was my day in and day out. I never knew, did they take my recommendations? Um, <laughs> how are they doing now? I would often wonder, you know? Um, and so that became challenging because I wanted to, the call to ABA was always there and always strong. And I, I wanted to do treatment. I didn't, you know, I, I enjoyed assessment, but my heart was in treatment. Mm -hmm. So when that call grew louder, that's when it became a challenge. It's so interesting. You know, the, the concept of summarizing or I'm almost envisioning it as like, almost like translating a little mm -hmm. bit of the, the findings from the assessment back to the family. I mean, I think families, you know, families know their children better than we ever will. And, and right. I think that's hands down, that's not a question. Um, uh, but like to be able to read through the assessments and some of them, it's like, I, you know, I remember being in meetings with families and saying, I think this is what they're asking. This is yeah. how I'm interpreting this question. How are you interpreting? And we're working together to kind of answer some of these diagnostic yeah. or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And and it's just so complicated. So I love that idea of being able to bring it back to them. Was that something that like somebody taught you that or you just discovered that or how, how just, did that become part of your practice? I just discovered it on my own. Um, I think just because of my background, I'm someone that I want all the knowledge mm -hmm. and I look forward to the day when <laughs> I can just 
link up to you and download the knowledge in your brain into mine, as opposed to having to spend hours to read it. I love reading, by the way, I love books, but um, I'm just looking forward to that day. But I'm someone that wants all of the information as much as I can get so I can make an informed decision. Mm -hmm. So I knew because of my background, um, I would just come and say, you know, what assessments have already been done? Um, can I see them? And as I started looking through them from my own knowledge so that I could connect the dots in my own head, I would often have parents, you know, they'd see me looking at it or I might ask a few questions to get some clarification and then it would, it would come out that they don't really understand what all of that, everything in the report really means. And how does this connect to, you know, what you're here to do? And right. so it was just an organic thing that then I would explain to them um, yeah. what was happening. Yeah. And for any families who are listening, I want to encourage you to feel empowered to ask that question, right? Don't, yeah. don't go through that process and say, I think it means this. I'm not quite sure. Ask the question. And if you need to ask it again, do it. I think, you know, for us, it becomes, you know, the terminology and the vernacular that we use becomes so secondhand and second nature that we forget that we've gone through this assessment tool a hundred times and you're going, families may be going through it for the first time. Exactly. So if you're, if you're a professional, please keep that in mind. And if you're a family, slow us down and ask. And, and there's, you know, we want, we want you to be a part of that process. So make sure you communicate that to us. And Richie, that's a huge thing that you've brought up. You know, I'm, I, I have always subscribe to the um, philosophy of, I just want it to be a resource and a source of support for families who are, um, who have children on the spectrum. Um, so I've had, when I used to um, work with families, I would have um, parents call me all the time at seeing, asking if, you know, I, I was available for services and what have you. And a lot of times I wasn't because it was just me and I had a full load, load already. But I would tell them, you know, what, ask them, what questions do you have? And we would just kind of get into this organic conversation about what they've been, what's been going on with them and, you know, what have you. And so I would try my best to give them whatever resources I could, um, point them in the right direction. And every time before we got off the phone or if it was an email, I would let them know, if you have any questions, please call me back. Please email me. You are not bothering me. If right. you are talking to another ABA company and you don't understand something that's been told to you, call me. <laughs> I will explain it to you free of charge. <laughs> if, if you get a treatment plan and you are just like, I don't understand any of this, call me. So I've always wanted to be that support because as a parent, I'm a parent and I, you know, I don't have a child on the spectrum, but it's overwhelming to, to, you know, where do I go first? Where do I look? You know, what's out there? And you start doing these searches. I've done them just to see. And it's, it's extremely overwhelming. And who do you talk to? And then the people that you want to ask something to are people who many times benefit, you know, because um, there is a um, financial exchange happening, right? right. And so um, 
I, I just want to make sure I, I'm very, very passionate about advocating for parents and advocating for children. I just want to make sure that they get the information they need so that they can make the choices that they need to, the best choices for their child and for themselves. So, yeah. Great. That's great. So fast forward in your career, now you are the department chair for uh, for the Applied Behavior Analysis Department at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. I'm Washington, D.C., the D.C. DC campus. campus, and I'm a Chicago School alum, also D.C. campus. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. like, it's your day-to-day is a little different, right? You're not My day-to-day is very different. Diagnostic problem. What's, what's different now, and what, um, I guess, what did you learn in your career that helped you be successful in the role that you're in now? Oh, that's a good question. Everything is different. <laughs> um, I don't, so I, I, my area when I was working in clinical practice was early intervention, verbal behavior, um, the kiddos who are 18 months, two years old, all the way up to about five, but I've worked the entire um, age span. And so, um, but the, the, the younger ones, oh, I love them. So I love them all. So um, I don't have them anymore. I don't work with parents anymore. Now I have the students and the students are my kiddos. Like the students are, I'm passionate about them. And so I'm still passionate about children on the spectrum. I'm still passionate about um, caregivers and everything I used to do. But that passion, that focus now is on my students and on, you know, um, uh, shaping the next generation of behavior analysts and leaders in the field. And I am very mindful of the fact that um, I want to diversify the field of ABA. And I am very aware of the fact that the majority of my students are students of color and, and they're first generation students. So they're the first in their families oftentimes to um, be in graduate school to um, pursue a graduate degree, whether it's a master's or a PhD. And I take that responsibility very seriously um, because I'm a first generation student as well. And I didn't have a lot of guidance. And so I really try to give them guidance and I want them to go out into the field and change the field, not just change, you know, uh, what, you know, uh, not just expand what we, uh, how we apply the field or what have you. I want all of that, but I feel like if we can get more people into the field that are, you know, um, with intersectionality, you know, whether that's race, ethnicity, gender, uh, sexuality, um, um, or sexual orientation, whatever it may be, then we're really going to see even, I think that that'll just take the field to the next level. And so that's what I am trying to foster with these students. And that's what I want them to do is I want them to go out there and change the field, make it more diverse, research on things that we don't tend to research on because it's important to them because they're bringing a different perspective to the field. They're bringing their voice 
to the field and they're showing up. And so I want them to be heard. And I want, I'm hoping that by the time I retire, the field will look different. The research will be different. The clinical practices will be different. And we'll be focused and talking about some other things that have nothing to do with DEI, <laughs> something else. I have worked all over the country. I have, uh, you know, worked internationally in the Middle East, North Africa, in my own um, home, Ghana. Um, I've, I've worked in many different countries and the things that I've seen um, and the, the need that is out there, both for families, but also the things as behavior analysts that we need to reflect on and change and be mindful of, I want to impart all of those things onto the next generation onto my students. So cultural, cultural humility, competency, awareness, you know, um, ethics. And, you know, we, we always talk about ethics, but ethics is not black and white. And especially if you're working internationally, and especially if you're working in with families and in cultures that are different than your own, um, there's, it's, it's, uh, it, it's a, different, they're different considerations. Um, and, and which is why I think that we need to have our, our ethical code needs to incorporate some multicultural ethics in there as well. But that's a whole nother <laughs> program. <laughs> but um, so it, it is I, I all of that passion is on them. So I try to impart on the students, um, a lot of what I've learned things that I I would love for them to avoid in terms of mistakes that I've made in the past. Um, really understanding that whether it's a family on the spectrum or an organization or um, um, some other population that you are working in a field where you are of service, you are a servant and not coming in and, you know, um, being destructive, you know? Right. So yeah, it's, it's very different. I do appreciate the, you know, we've talked about this on previous episodes, how the field is evolving a lot mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how there's more conversations about compassionate care and, and, you know, really, really supporting families in the way that they need support, not in the way that we think they need support. Right. Um, and I think that lines up a lot with what you're saying is making sure that we're paying attention to families, you know, each family unit is its own different culture on its own, right? Yeah. You know, they're, they're a culture of a culture. And, and right. so I, I think being able to be mindful of that and build that into your everyday practice, it sounds like that's what you're really trying to bring to a lot of your students. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So you mentioned you've, you've supported families all over multiple places around the, around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you how did you get into that and 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 like what prompted that to happen? Right. I'm so curious about that. So um, I think it's my family's from Ghana, uh, west coast of Africa, and so um, and I of my mother, my father, and my sister. I was the only one that was born here. They were born there. Um, 
However, I was raised <laughs> in such a way that I, you wouldn't know, I didn't know I was in America until I went to school or stepped outside of the house um, because it was a very Ghanaian culture and household. And from the food to the language, there wasn't a lot of English spoken in the house. There wasn't um, a lot of American, there wasn't much American food and um, being cooked and what have you. So. I think my love for international work stemmed from having a different perspective or worldview than a lot of um, um, of my American colleagues who, um, you know, were not only born and raised here, but their parents were born and raised here and their parents were born and raised here. Um, so it started there. But then uh, I was working for a um, that same very prestigious organization, but no longer in neuropsych, I got into treatment <laughs> there. So yes. And so, um, I was doing treatment there and I created a program called TIPS, which stand, which stood for therapeutic interventions and parenting strategies. My clients were, um, all international or long distance. So I had clients from India, from Saudi Arabia, from Washington state. Um, so I, you know, I had clients from all over coming and what I would essentially do was uh, they would stay with us for anywhere from two weeks to a month, depending on how long they were able to stay in the States. And in that time, their child would go into one of our, one of the classrooms. And I would also work work one-to-one -one with that child. I trained their therapist that they brought with them. I did parent training and I, I assessed, I did assessments and they also received assessments from other people. So they would receive like an autism diagnosis and see the developmental pediatrician and what have you. And so I would put together a treatment plan for them and we would start implementing it. And I trained the therapist on how to implement it. I trained the parents on how to generalize it. And I trained them on basic behavior analytic principles. And um, then they would take the program with them back home and we would do, um, I would do supervision and we would do um, a regular um, like telehealth, Mm -hmm. type, you know, yeah, um, fidelity checks and um, things of that nature. And again, this is 12 years ago. So this isn't <laughs> this, these families were sending me little um, VHS, like mini VHS tapes okay. that you would put in a VHS tape, like some yep. weird that you would then put into <laughs> the yes. machine to play the session so that I could see the session. And so, and sometimes I'd be watching it while I was actually on Skype with them. And then we would look to, you know, I would give them feedback or we would be on Skype and I'd be watching their session in vivo. Yeah. We would also look at data together and what have you. So this was a time where there was no RBT, there were no supervision standards and what have you. So um, through that um, wonderful experience, the issue that arose, Richie, was that parents realized that this, that whole setup wasn't sustainable. 
and they wanted, they kept asking me to come home with them and stay there for a month or however long and do more work. You know, basically they wanted me to see them in their home, in their actual living environment and give them more um, support and guidance and what have you, build in more net understanding where they're living, their culture and what have you. And that was a big piece that was missing. So because I would send them home with this huge binder and, you know, essentially we, you know, do telehealth after that. And so I could no longer have parents crying in front of me saying, begging me to come you know, do work at their home or to, to work with them in the home and telling me that, you know, they don't have a BCBA where they live. They don't know there isn't anyone that can do ABA. Um, and, and it was really heartbreaking. So that's when I transitioned into international work. I mean, it's and so important. It's so important. I've, I've done a little bit of international work as well. And one of the things I noticed is like, we have this idea of what what our infrastructure looks like, you know, mm -hmm. from schooling to transportation to, uh, you know, even the fact that there are medical services available close by and things like that. Um, right. And that's not always the case everywhere. And that's not always, you know, for example, um, one of the students I worked with internationally didn't have a teacher. There was not a school that provided any, any education. So we were trying to do the behavior analytic services through mm -hmm. Skype or I would, I remember having this camera that like we would have to adjust and it was like, a, they could, they could adjust it on their end. And it had this like feature where they could look around the room and I could do the same. And I was, I remember <laughs> trying to see sessions and trying to coach people, but you know, we're half a world apart and yeah. Yeah. it was so hard to try to incorporate the, like the academic aspect, the behavioral aspect, the self-help aspect. And it was, yes. I mean, Yes. all of it. it was like an all encompassing all encompassing program and mm -hmm. i think that's something that people don't always consider when they're supporting people in different countries that are you know they, yeah absolutely not absolutely not and i know a lot of people like when i would say like um i'm going to egypt to work with a, a family i know a lot of people thought i was or people the perception was that i was going in to these wonderful places and having a vacation. <laughs> and I, Richie, I literally saw the pyramids in the car going to a school for my kiddo and leaving the school for my kiddo because I went to go look at a school to see if it was an appropriate, um, if it would be appropriate for him, mm -hmm. given his uh, presentation, given his skill set and what have you. That's how I saw the, the pyramids, very far away on the highway, <laughs> passing by. Um, when I go and work with uh, my families internationally, they own me for, you mean like, that's it. Like I, I get there and we get to work. I barely sleep. Um, I, I work like 17, 18 hour days because our time is so limited and there's so much to do. And you know, you know, even here, we put together a treatment program there's so much to do. Like that's months and months and months and years of work. And I'm, you know, trying to get that all together and anywhere from two weeks to a month, depending on how long I happen to be staying in that with or working with that client. That's amazing. So, yeah. What's one thing, if you could highlight one thing and share one, you know, maybe it's a, maybe it's a story or something you've learned from this experience that, that you think people here should recognize and, and sort of carry with in their daily practice. What would that one 
one lesson be? That's a good question from my international work. Yeah. I think the one, uh, the, the few things I would say is that there's a lot of work that needs to be done mm -hmm. in a lot of different countries. Mm -hmm. There are some countries that have, um, that are, 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 very rich financially, but don't have the resources, the human resources. Mm -hmm. And then there are countries that don't have either. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done on dissemination, excuse me, dissemination of um, information about early intervention, early detection, early diagnosis, and ABA. Um, in Ghana, it's getting better. For example, in Ghana, it's getting better. However, um, there aren't a lot. There's there's one, two BCBAs in Ghana, um, one in Accra, who is American and you know is married to a Ghanaian man and moved to Ghana. I don't know her whole story. Um, um, I, uh, but we don't. There are no Ghanaian BCBAs in Ghana, right? And there isn't, uh, there needs to be more work on understanding the etiology of mm -hmm. autism because, um, and I'm generalizing, a lot of people understand the etiology, but there are more people that believe that autism is contagious, is um, the child is possessed by the devil, mm. the mother sinned. Um, this is retribution for something, you know, the family did. And so, and, and so that, in addition to a lack of services, it really disenfranchises the family. So just letting people know that there's a lot of work that needs to be done in other countries. And if you have any desire to do international work, please, please do it <laughs> because yeah. it's needed, especially in low and middle income countries. And also to be um, culturally, to really have on your mind, uh, to be culturally aware, to be culturally aware, uh, culturally sensitive, to do the work, your own work and work on your own biases, but not just your own personal biases, but also your professional biases. For example, mm -hmm. I worked with a family in Lebanon and um, I was, um, you know, I was putting together their program and um, one of the activities that I was training the therapist on was, you know, um, to use songs to hit certain targets, working on introverbal fill-ins, working on joint attention, working on, you know, um, different things. And so one of the songs that I had in my mind seemed very much like, yes, this is a song that we use all the time. It was um, Old MacDonald Had a Farm. Oh, yeah. And the therapist turned around and said, what is this song? I've not heard of it before. Hmm. And I stopped right there. And I, I, I was like <laughs> shocked. And I said, oh, I always talk to other people about this and I just did it. <laughs> um, and so I recognized right there, you know, my own bias in my treatment planning and my treatment implementation that I was using these Western songs, um, Western gestures, um, 
to, and I was uh, embedding it into this treatment plan, not realizing that this is not, they are not in a Western culture. And so we had to then use, you know, um, uh, songs that were in Arabic and and Lebanese children's songs. And, you know, I, I, I just stopped right there and they gave me a nice education about things. I just asked questions and changed. I spent that night just changing up the treatment plan, just changing everything up. So being mindful of that. Um, and, you know, I, this isn't most really an international thing. Like if you're working with families that we're in partnership with them, we are not against them. You know, like you said, you know, we as parents know our children better than anyone else. And I always say, you're the expert on your child. I know ABA. <laughs> so together, we are going to do something really awesome. You know, we're going to work together to work on these skills, to do these amazing things and, and help your uh, child, you know, build on their strengths and acquire some new skills. That concept of, you know, one, having a little bit of awareness and, and humility with programming. I mean, for me, I had a, I had an opportunity and I was working with um, one family that was very affluent and, mm-hmm. They had a, you know, a teenage daughter and I was thinking in my head, great, we've got to get her to, she's got to be able to menu plan and go grocery shopping and mm-hmm. do all these things. And then I get to their home and they had, um, they had servants who were doing all those things for them. Exactly. So I'm thinking, okay, great. Well, how are we going to teach her to go grocery shopping? And they're like, oh no, we, she wouldn't. And I was thinking, yep. okay, but wouldn't she need that? Nope. Yep. Nope. She's not going to need that skill. And it's like, okay, great. Let's back up a little bit and let me, me, uh, you know, first like check my ego outside because I thought I had this all figured out and this was going to be a breeze, but there are some challenges and and that really kind of like, man, I really, I don't, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And to be able to have that open mind of if you are going to go into another country or another part of our country or just a new family's home, be open-minded to, um, hearing what that family has to say and what they what their what their beliefs are and what right. and what their priorities are i think is really important also right learn about them you know learn learn um about the families that you work with so that you can you know put together a really amazing treatment plan that they're a part of you know you said something about um, that example you gave was really great, Richie, <laughs> by the way, um, because that's that's I've worked with a lot of a lot of affluent families abroad as well. Um, I mean, probably more affluent than I will be in this lifetime. And um, that's a real thing. You know, I had children who had nannies 24 seven and I had a similar experience, you know, um, this child needs to start bathing on their own and not having the nanny bathe them at seven. However, I waited for mom to, to give me the sign that that's the direction that she wanted to go in. And so once she said, yeah, this is ridiculous. He's too old for this then we acted and then we got in there and we you know we worked on that but had she said you know this is how it's going to be until he hits puberty and i don't expect him to you know wash himself then that's 
but that's their culture. And yeah. So, um, so yeah, just being very mindful, very know who you are working with, you know, know the family, know the, the, um, client that you're working with. Paula, thank, thank you so much for that insight. That's such, (laughs) I just appreciate getting to sit and chat with you like this. This is something that like we've done in different contexts and I I feel like you and I could talk for another hour, but I know we're running out of time. So we're going to have to have you back so we can dive into more more of this conversation and continue it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. No problem. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Paula Donquabrobi. The thing that I really took away from that conversation is that there really is no perfect pathway. There is no A to Z in terms of your career. Your career can take you in all sorts of different places and and all sorts of different directions. So I wanna encourage you, if you're becoming a behavior analyst, if you're going to school, if you're starting off this career and this is your first position, feel free to try something new, right? Follow your interests and figure out how to include your interests into the interest, into your work. We do that with our clients all the time, right? We create plans and we talk about how we're gonna build their motivation into the plan. We need to do that for ourselves and for our careers also. If we're working every day to find find meaningful work and find a way to include our interests in our work, we're gonna be moving constantly in the direction of career fulfillment. And I think that's so valuable and I think that's gonna help us as a field really address some of the burnout issues that we've talked about before um, in this podcast and at conference and, and things like that. So if you're, uh, if you are a, a speech pathologist, if you are a special education teacher, if you are interested in getting involved in the field, jump in and try it. You know, no one's saying sell your house and move across the country to do it, but try it. Even if it's part-time or even if it's on the side one night a week or one Saturday a month, something like that, get into it, get engaged and see where it can take you. And if it's something that is interesting, keep going. And if it's something that's not, then you can stop. That's okay. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a show suggestion or other feedback, we want to hear from you. Please send us an email at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com. And feel free to subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. Be well. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.